study in the book of First Corinthians. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along or just look in the bulletin, the passage is in there as well. Do you find life to be confusing, disorienting? God's Word is so helpful because it gives us perspective. You have these characters like Job and Jeremiah and Jesus and Daniel books like Ecclesiastes, and they give perspective of why are the righteous suffering and what is success? And in this particular book, imagine being one who's planted a church, okay? Paul has planted this church. He is their father in the faith. They came to Christ through his preaching, And now they've become skeptical and suspicious of Paul, that he's really not near as gifted as the people who've come behind him. And these other people are much more, I mean, Paul repeats himself a lot. He just keeps talking about Christ crucified. And he doesn't have the wisdom and the sophistication that these other guys, and he doesn't have the rhetoric skills and the natural gifts and now they're measuring him through a worldly measuring stick. And now Paul's trying to write to them to win their hearts. And so Paul is, is struggling with this idea that he is being looked through to the world's stamp of expectation, the world's stamp of evaluation. And he's dealing with a misplaced exaltation and Paul's just not measuring up. And maybe you're here this morning, maybe you found yourself being evaluated through a lens which you don't like being evaluated by. I've talked to many people over the years, they feel like, you know, their boss is is asking things from them that they cannot deliver. Abby Johnson describes in her book about being a director of a Planned Parenthood in Texas and coming to the realization that she really thought she was helping people and showing compassion, but the higher-ups at Planned Parenthood kept telling her in bold print that she just needed to increase her abortion numbers and and get it moving the people through the line, that her, her evaluation time of seeing patients was way too long. We need to get them in and through and get them to have an abortion because the bottom line was money. And she discovered that she was at odds with her job. Well, the Corinthian church is measuring its success, often like the American church today, in success that's in a skewed lens. It's an overinflation of gifts, an overinflation of abilities, an overinflation of style over substance, And all of this was a serious eschatological problem. There's a big word for you. They had an over-realized eschatology. Translation, they expected everything now and they measured everything by now. And what is this doing for me now? And Paul has a lot to say about that. And I want us to hear what he um, has to say so that we are not measuring as a church how we are doing by nickels, noses, and noise. That's the evaluators in the American church. The nickels is how much money came in, the noses is how many people came and how much diversity there was, and the noise is just how how cool was the music and did we like it. Rather than our lives being transformed by the gospel, 
is the Bible saturation happening truly in our thought life, that we are being saturated by the word of God and the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, that we are demonstrating fruit of true repentance. Marriages are being saved, lives are being changed, and there's godliness with contentment that abounds. And people are actually resting and not having to medicate to go to bed at night. Otherwise, we're being hoodwinked like the church in Corinth. So hear what the Apostle Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they should be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted, homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot in here, and there's something in here for each of us. And so we ask that you'd speak loudly and that we, like Samuel, would say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And may we bear much fruit from the word we receive, not forgetting what we look like. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask four questions from the text this morning. I think they're right from the text. The first question is, how should we be regarded Verses one and two. Second question is, how should we be judged? How should we judge one another? That's verses three to eight. And then, does our lifestyle reflect Christ? Verses nine to 13. And the last question is, who are you imitating? Who are you imitating? So let's consider those four questions. First question is, 
how should we be regarded? And the answer that Paul gives is he says, this is how one should regard us. Here is the proper measuring stick. Here is the right rule to measure us with. Measure us as servants and stewards. And the word for servants here is not the doulos, typical slave word, but it's close. The word is actually an under rower on a ship. Don't think of us as captains, but under rowers. We are down in the trenches rowing hard. So think of us not as captains, but as under rowers. Consider us servants. And then he says, we're stewards of the mysteries of God. Now the mysteries of God is referring to things, things once concealed in the Old Testament but now revealed in the New. And this isn't just for Paul. All those who proclaim his word today and preach are stewards of things once concealed in the Old Testament now revealed in the New. My point in that is it's not for some people who attain some secret knowledge of God through some other means than, than how he communicates with the rest of us. That's not what Paul means by, by mysteries, okay? Paul is saying he's a steward and that his work as a steward is he's like, just like Joseph was, if you remember Joseph in the Old Testament, working in Potiphar's house, he was the chief household slave. He was the steward. And we've been entrusted with a responsibility, but we don't own anything. And so as stewards, Paul is saying we are to be found faithful, full of faith, trustworthy, reliable, consistent, and in one sense, we can say as Christians that we're all stewards. We're all stewards and not owners. And we're stewards of the gift. If you've been born again, God's spirit has come down in your life, regenerated you. He's given you a gift or gifts. And First Peter says this. Peter says in First Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the first question is, how should we be regarded? And the answer is pretty simple. We're servants and we're stewards. We're not owners and we're not kings. We're servants. The second question is, how should we be judged? And verse three is really an amazing verse. Take a look at verse three for a minute. I think this has a lot to say about our culture in America. The Apostle Paul says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Wow, well, Let's think about this. What if we really live like this? That he's saying it's a really small thing, it's really insignificant. And yet, in our world, we might say just the opposite. It's a very massive thing, young people, how they are judged by their social media likes. It's a massive thing. How many followers do you have on Facebook? Do you actually know? I mean, I have no idea, and I don't care, but I mean, there's people that they actually look and they count, and they count how many likes they have. And if, you know, they don't, if they haven't met like triple digits or something, they're gonna be like disappointed. What are you living for? Are you trying to impress people or impact people? Seriously, 
What are you trying to do with your life? Impress people or impact them? Impress them is about yourself. Impacting them is with Jesus. Paul says it's a very small thing. He, he does say, look, it's a small thing. I mean, if, if somebody says they, they don't regard at all human opinion, then they're probably pathological and really scary. Like you should, to some sense, when you hear criticism, you have to weigh for the, what's the nugget of truth in that? You know, what, what is the grain of truth? Okay, but let's not be ruled by it, so now they're the Lord of our conscience. For me, it's a small thing, Paul says. But in America, it's a big thing. People worry about their job title. Their SAT score is huge. What classes you take and sign up for? You got enough honors classes that you're taking so it'll look good when everybody looks at you and you tell them what classes you're saying? I mean, what if there was a bumper sticker on the back of our cars that just said, my child is ordinary? How's that going over, you know? I came across a commentary this week where Stephen um, was quoting Richard Leahy, who's a prominent psychologist, anxiety specialist. He says that the average high school student today has the same level, anxiety, same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. It's because verse three is not being applied that the gospel hasn't gone down. It's because people are big and God is small. The New York Times reported in 2011 that 30% of American women admit to taking sleeping pills before they go to bed at night because verse three is not being applied. We live in a crazy culture. I mean, I, I, was, noted, I was reading one of these articles that was talking about all the states in America and which states are actually the most financially prosperous. And do you know that, that Maryland is number two of the 50 states? Of the, of the amount of income per family. What does that tell you? It tells you everybody's working is what it tells you. And if you're a stay-at-home mom, well then shame on you. Kim's doing jury duty this week, and she was, I was overlooking her filling out the form, and her jury duty is the day that we're supposed to do the VBS decorating. Crazy, right? So she's filling out the form, and they want a work number. And I'm just watching her fill this thing out. And if you don't have a work number, you have to type out 10 zeros. Just say you're a loser 10 times and type out 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0. I'm a loser. I don't have a work number. Thankfully, it didn't bother her, but it bothered me just reading it. How do you feel about when people don't like you? When somebody significant doesn't like your work? Do you say, verse 3, well, it's a very small thing? Or do you say, no, it's a big thing. It's big. It's weighing on me. I mean, my dental assistants just going to the dentist. I mean, you've heard me say over the years. I mean, I heard my one dental assistant tell another, he's a mouth breather. And another time they said, he's a teeth grinder. I mean, I feel like a dragon every time I go into that place. I'm a mouth breathing teeth grinder, you know? I need counseling, you know? I can remember when I was in middle school being mortified. We had this thing where everybody had to be tested for scoliosis. And they lined up all the middle schoolers along, the, along the, 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 the end line on the basketball court. 
and we all had to lean over and, and put your hands on your toes and they came behind you and they looked at everybody's back and everybody that failed the test over here. And everybody that passed, okay, you're okay. And I was one of the people that had to be marched over here that I failed the scoliosis test. And that's the scariest word as a middle school kid, scoliosis. I mean, it just sounds like you're, you're, you know, you're gonna die. Well, then I had to go see a specialist and the specialist sat down with my dad and I and he explained to me and my dad that, that I have a very mild case of scoliosis. Now I'm in middle school and I don't know what the word mild means, but I thought it meant acute. Okay, so all I'm translating is my life is over because not only do I have scoliosis, but I have a very mild case of scoliosis. Because I was so worried about what people thought. I wasn't worried about what it was gonna do to me. All I was worrying about was what other people would think about me. Because I didn't understand what verse three was saying. You see, Paul doesn't worry about what people think of him because he has a new audience. And that audience means everything to him. It's the audience of one. He says, I don't even judge myself. He, what matters to Paul is what God thinks of him. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis where he begins his, his essay, what are we to make of Jesus Christ? And he says, he says, what are we to make of Jesus Christ? This is a question which has, in a sense, a frantically comic side. For the real question is not what we are to make of Christ, but what is he to make of us? The picture of a fly sitting deciding what it's gonna make of an element has some comic elements about it, C.S. Lewis says. So Paul goes on here and he says, I don't, even, I don't even judge myself. Now I want you to just think about that in light of the Jimmy Cricket world we live in. What is Jimmy, Jimmy Cricket, for all you that are young, you may have probably not even heard of him. What was his motto? Let your conscience be your guide, right? Doesn't that sound great? If your conscience doesn't bother you, it must be okay. And the, pro the reason why that doesn't work is the Apostle Paul says in other places that our conscience is being hardened by sin. So conscience is not a good guide, nor is feeling a good guide to a leper because he can't feel anything. And if you're not being conformed and, and transformed by the word of God, your conscience is actually being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that you say, oh, well, it's just, it's premarital sex, but we're gonna get married, it's okay. We start to, to rationalize things that we shouldn't be rationalizing, that don't square with the word of God. So a conscience is, is a soft pillow, as one person put it, but it may be a pillow of self-deception. Your conscience in your life must be governed by scripture. And Paul says, look, I don't, even, I don't even judge myself. He says, I'm not aware of anything, but that doesn't make me acquitted because it's the Lord who judges me. And we live in such a critiquing world where criticism abounds. You know, we're constantly giving likes uh, and we look at everything and we determine whether it's good or whether we're gonna tune in, whether we're gonna tune out, whether this sermon is good or not, whether it, you know, rather than evaluating, well, what is it, what is the Holy Spirit saying about my heart and my life? 
And the Apostle Paul is very concerned about the way he's being critiqued by the Corinthian church. Ed Welch, in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, he has this great quote. He says, if you've ever walked among giant redwoods, you'll never be overwhelmed again by the size of a dogwood tree. If you've been through a hurricane, a spring rain is nothing to fear. If you've been in the presence of Almighty God, everything that once controlled you suddenly has less power. It loses its grip. And you guys have heard me tell this story a few times as a kid, the time that we went into this house that we thought was haunted. And we really thought this house was haunted. And we kept climbing the stairs and running out of the house because we heard something up on that top floor. And I'm a middle school kid with my three buddies, or two buddies, and we climbed those stairs and we finally got to the top and BAM! The loudest noise you've ever heard in your life jumped all the stairs. I run out of there and it's a guy with a sawed-off shotgun. And I was relieved to see him. How in the world would you be relieved to see a guy with a sawed-off shotgun? Well, when you're convinced the boogeyman's gonna kill you and you, and as a middle school kid and you get out of that house and it's just a cool guy in a Jeep with a sawed-off shotgun over his shoulder telling you to get off his property, I was relieved to see him. That was a relief because I thought the boogeyman was gonna kill me. Well, you're here this morning, if you're governed by and, and ruled by the praise of men, once you get in the presence of God and you see his overwhelming glory and you realize that he loves you and died for you and became so small and crushed and give, has given you all you need for life and godliness and welcomes you to his table and that you're his family, brothers and sisters, and he's your brother and he's not ashamed of you. Does that not change what you, when you, we worry about what people think about us? You see, it changes everything. Once you've been around the, the redwoods, dogwood doesn't look so big anymore, does it? So Paul speaks of before the time, before the Lord comes, verse five, this is important, because he's getting at this idea that the Corinthians had this, this problem it was an eschatology problem. They kept thinking, we've got to measure it now. We've got to judge now. And if you notice, if you read the text in light of that, of how much he's talking about, are you expecting it now or are you expecting when the Lord returns? Because he's saying, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He's going to bring it to light. He's going to disclose. Then each one will receive his commendation. You don't get your commendation now from men. You get it when the Lord returns. And I've applied this to a policy myself, that, and yet you might not go beyond what's written. And why are you puffed up against one another he's getting at? You see, the idea is that Paul's driving this down to say, look, where are you getting, where are you getting this idea that you think you've received something because this person was a greater speaker or, or everything's from God? So if God used Apollos or he used Peter or he used Paul, it was the Lord who did it. And none of us have anything in and of ourselves. And so the idea is that he's, he's showing them they've got the wrong thinking, the wrong uh, scale, that they need to put away the scale and go back to what the scriptures teach. And so for Paul, he doesn't get his grade. He doesn't get his worth from what the Corinthians think about him. And we shouldn't from other people as well. The interesting thing is that we can be wrong so often in our, in our judgments, and sometimes we, we can just be flat wrong in our judgments about other people. It's funny, you know, Matthew Geary's at, at my old church. 
And I gave references to him to other places, but when he said he wanted to apply to the church I came from, I said, you don't want to go there. Don't even apply, which is terrible to say about my old church, but I just thought, that church is really big, and you're only 24, you're just getting married, and they called me twice, and I told them, you're looking for a bigger fish. Like, you're a big church, 80 to 100 kids in the high school youth ministry. Why would you want Matthew Geary? I mean, and, and guess what? They hired him. I was wrong. I was wrong in my judgment. I think about it since. I'm like, well, he loves the Lord. He loves kids. He's got a seminary degree, and he's young and still loves kids. It's a great environment. Let, let Matthew go and be a blessing. But why was I the one to, like, say, no, you shouldn't even apply? No, no. I was wrong. I hope I get a chance to go back down there and, and uh, apologize uh, to the church. But sometimes we can be way wrong. I mean, this year in the, in the, in the, in the finals, just to give you an example, the Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup, right? And who did they beat? They beat the Vegas Knights. Well, the odds makers live where? They live in Vegas. So how do you think they set the odds? They were terribly skewed that the Vegas Knights were just gonna crush the Washington Capitals. And a lot of people lost a lot of money because they trusted the, the odds makers who set the odds, but the people setting the odds had a radical home court bias and couldn't see reality because they loved their home team. They couldn't look objectively at the truth, you see? So the idea is that sometimes people looking at you and making an evaluation, they can't give an objective evaluation. So make a little thing about what people think about you. And all that we've received, the Bible says we can't receive anything unless it's been given to us by the Lord. Third question, does our lifestyle reflect Christ? The sarcasm of verse eight and following is just so jarring, isn't it? I mean, this is, you're reading Paul, it was almost, I felt weird reading it to you. Already you have all you want. Already you become rich, and without us, you become kings. And would that you did reign, that you might share the rule with, that we might share the rule with you. You're the big shots. You got everything. You've already overeaten. You're fully saying. You got everything. You're spectacular. We're a spectacle. And he's doing this contrast to say, here's Paul's life, and here's what Paul's about, and here's what his tune he's marching to, and here's what you're doing as the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church over here is, no, you're wise. You guys are really wise. You, you hold up philosophy and, 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 uh, and you're strong and, and you're held in honor. And, uh, and then he describes himself and he's saying, we're fools, we're weak, we're in disrepute, we're, we hunger, we're thirst, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted, we're homeless. We labor working with our own hands. Does Paul look impressive to you? Does he like, look like the guy that would be the keynote speaker invited to your conference to come give some impressive, you know, and, and dresses like a million bucks? I remember one time interviewing for a church and, and, and I called this guy and he said, they're looking for somebody that will look good in front of their friends. Like he dresses right, looks nice. I'm like, I'm not interested in a church like that. I interviewed at a church one and they wanted to know, what kind of car do you drive? You know, like, are you going to be acceptable around my friends? You know, I, told, I drive a Nissan Sentra. It is, and let me tell you, it's powerful. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know what to do. He was kind of shaking his head. Like, 
So the Apostle Paul, he doesn't fit there, he doesn't fit it. And he's saying, we are last of all. And, and the imagery that he's giving here is really shocking. We're like men sentenced to death. He says in verse nine, we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. And the idea is either referring to one or two things. One is the gladiators and before they're killed off in the Colosseum, if they've lost and they're the losers, they're the spectacle that everybody's waiting to be slaughtered or it's referring more likely to when a general would win a battle and he would be ushered in on a chariot and he'd have everybody behind him and, and at the very back, of this, of this parade would be the people that were conquered and they would be thrown to the lions and thrown to the wild beast and slaughtered in front of everybody to show who was king. And Paul says, that's us. We're last of all. We're the last of the train. You're having the parade. You're having the party. You, you have everything now because your eschatology's now. You gotta have it now. You gotta be rich now. You gotta have the bigger house now. You gotta have the better everything now. You gotta have, you gotta have it all now. And Paul's saying, man, we're, we're just laboring. We're, we're suffering. And you guys live like kings. And we're living like servants. And Paul's saying, what escalator was Jesus on, I think? What's the escalator that Jesus went up or down? I believe in Jesus Christ, our only, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, descended into hell. Can you go any lower than that? The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and from there he'll come to judge the living and the dead. We don't get to the, to the glory part till you go the down the escalator. What's the whole Christian life about? If indeed you share in my sufferings, then you'll share in my glory. And so he's calling us to follow his footsteps. And Jesus went down, 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 down before he went up. And so we can't have this over-realized eschatology to think we gotta have glory now. Glory doesn't come until he returns. And so we're called to suffer. Holy Spirit Church looks like a church that embraces hardship. Holy Spirit Church is a church that embraces difficulties. It's not the proud church. They do the little things. They love people well. They get in their lives. You think about the Apostle Paul and what he's saying here, and then you start thinking about the apostles and all the train that's come from them. He's saying we're last of all. I mean, Peter was crucified upside down. Paul gave neck to the sword, Fox Book of Martyrs says, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, was burned at the stake and pierced with a, a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. Before he was killed, he said, 80 and six years I've served him. He's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and, a little while is, and after a little while is quenched, but you're ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that's prepared for the wicked. And then his dying words, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of martyrs I might share the cup of Christ. And Justin Martyr, who came after him, what's his last name? Oh, he got that because that's what happened to him. Justin Martyr. William Tyndale, for just translating the Bible into the English language, 
to get the Bible in the English language and out of just Latin and, and to, he wanted every family to have an English Bible in England. He was choked and then killed and then burned at the stake and then later they dug up his bones and threw him in the river. Luther was on the run. He should have been killed because his predecessor, John Huss, who testified for Christ, he was burned at the stake. They thought that would happen to Luther. Calvin, how did he fare? He had to flee out of France because they were going to kill him. And when he got to Geneva, he was there two years and they exiled him from the church. He was kicked out of his church on the run. Jonathan Edwards, 90% vote, you're out. Out of your church, best preacher, best American mind, out. Spurgeon's wife kept a, a scrapbook for Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and she put on the whole front page, blessed are those who revile you and persecute you and utter all, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That was the front page of the scrapbook, and the scrapbook was all the newspaper clippings that came out every week and maligned Spurgeon and ran him, constantly ran him through the, through the grinder. And Paul is saying, we have sunk to the bottom. I mean, he says, we're the scum. We're the scum of the world. How do you like that? We're the scum of the world. Anybody, anybody sign up for that this morning? Refuse of all things, anybody? I mean, that's what, that's what he's saying we are. And yet, what does the world want you to be? What does the world tell you you can be? They just want you to be happy. And, and you can do whatever you want to do. This is not the world's message. Paul is saying about his life, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I drifted sea. On frequent dangers and, and journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers and toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Wow. He says, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Can you imagine the last guard that would have stripped Paul down before he beat him? He's got 195 lashes, if I'm doing my math right, 39 times five, so 195 times he's been lashed. So how does his back look when you pull that thing off? Of course, by that it would have been 40 less. It'd be like 150 scars on his back. And I'm going to put 39 more on there. Imagine you're the, judge, you're the guy that's, that's, that's going to do that to him. What are you thinking about Paul? You're seeing a guy with 150 marks on his back. There's one thing you know. This guy really believes what he's doing. And now I'm going to tear him up some more? It's totally the opposite of how the world I mean, this is just a complete opposite. And so then Paul asked a question. He asked, he asked, he says, he, he tells the people, I'm your father and to follow me. Don't follow the world. And so the question to us this morning is really, who are we imitating? Paul's reminding them who he is, 
and how it's affected his life because he's following Christ. What Paul is doing is following in the footsteps of Christ. And so this passage is, is a passage for us to rethink success, rethink suffering, for us to rethink what it means to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this table, we're reminded of how much our Lord Jesus suffered. The Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, carrying his own cross, boring our sins in his own body on the tree. And so, Lord, we're reminded that you've called us today to follow you, to take up our cross, deny ourselves. Forgive us, Lord. We love this world. We have disordered desires. We want to boast about what we have and what we do. We have lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes. Remind us afresh that we have been crucified to this world and the world to us. Meet us here at your table, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.